A nasty year comes to an end as we examine the collapse of trust in America's institutions. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Don't let big tech track what you do. Anonymize your web browsing at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, before we get to anything going on in the news, let me remind you, it's pretty important to defend yourself. And there's a great new way for you to defend yourself. I, of course, am talking about Taser. Taser's line of non-lethal self-protection devices. They're small. They're lightweight enough to carry with you or in your glove compartment or in your purse. They're powerful enough to incapacitate an attacker. I got one of these for my wife. I cannot wait for her to start carrying it around because Frankly, she is not a large person, and I don't want to rely on her powers of self-defense in order for her to protect herself. This is why Taser is excellent. They use an electrical charge to immobilize attackers for up to 30 seconds, giving you time to escape to safety and send emergency dispatch to your GPS location. They also have laser-assisted targeting. You can protect yourself and your family with Taser's line of smart self-defense products. Again, you know, I want a Taser, but I particularly want my wife to have a Taser. Taser is also available without a permit in most U.S. states. So if you live in a blue state, Taser is like perfect for you. Get the Taser Pulse Plus or Taser Strike Light at Taser.com with promo code Ben. Save 15% right now at Taser.com, promo code Ben. Again, it is T-A-S-E-R.com, promo code Ben. This does make an excellent Christmas gift. Restrictions to apply. See site for details. Again, go to Taser.com, promo code Ben for 15% off and get yourself or somebody you love a way to defend themselves that uh, is going to be legal in virtually... All states without a permit, go check them out right now. Taser.com, promo code Ben. Alrighty, so if the last year has taught us a couple of things, it's taught us a couple of things. One, the American people are incredibly resilient, like truly resilient. We have This has been an awful year, a truly bad year. Hundreds of thousands of Americans dead of COVID. A political system that has lost the trust of the American people, and I think in many cases, rightly so. An institutional infrastructure in the United States that has undermined our trust in those institutions. The American people have withstood all of this, which is why I'm optimistic, despite all of that, going into next year, because the Republic still stands. And more importantly, I think that Americans are tough-minded enough to have withstood this awful year. And moving forward, I think that there is every possibility that things could get better in spite of all the obstacles we face. But one thing has become clear above all else in the middle of all of this, and that is we need new institutions. We need new institutions, or we need to remake the institutions that currently govern us. I don't I'm not just talking about the the U.S. government, and I'm not just talking about the people who staff up the administrative agencies in the U.S. government. I'm talking about Hollywood. I'm talking about the scientific establishment. I'm talking about social media. I'm talking about corporations. What we have watched over the past couple of decades is the complete remaking of all the institutions in which Americans placed their trust. And in fact, the only institutions where the constituency didn't really change radically, those are the institutions that have been under attack by the newfangled institutions like the military and the police, right? Those are the institutions that are under assault. All of the other institutions have basically been hijacked by the power of the left and militarized and weaponized against you. They've been militarized and they've been weaponized by a group of people who truly believe that they are the select. They are the elite. They are the people who should be running your lives. They speak a common language. They look down on people who do not speak the common language. And they're willing to close all avenues of power to people who do not think the way they think. And the consequences of their ideology are incredibly dangerous. They no longer believe in the free exchange of ideas, many of them. They no longer believe in individual freedoms and individual rights. They believe in a utopian scheme whereby they get to effectuate equality of outcome above all else. And I think Americans look at that and they rightly say, I don't trust these institutions that are trying to cram down a version of reality that doesn't exist on me and then then tell me that I am some sort of heretic if I don't go along in order to get along. 
In fact, as I've been saying for literally years at this point, I think that that's really what the Trump phenomenon is and was. I think Trump is just a middle finger to all of these institutions that demanded your fealty while simultaneously undercutting you, that demanded that you believe in them, that you repeat the nostrums that they put in front of you, and then proceeded to use their institutional power in order to undercut a lot of your values. I think Trump was just a giant pulsating middle finger to that. I think he continues to be that. I think that's why he's generated the enormous amount of love from his base that he has. I think it's why he's generated the enormous amount of hatred from the institutional left that he has. But to understand how deeply rooted this battle is and what's going to happen in the upcoming years, and this is where I think things are going to get worse, but I think the battle has just begun. I think that no matter where we stand at this moment, and no matter what happens, when, when Joe Biden takes office in, in January, in late January, barring some sort of cataclysmic occurrence, no matter what happens, the battle is going to continue and it's going to get worse. But I think the American people are awake to the battle. I think Trump has had a hand in waking the American people up to that battle. Trump was not elected to, to govern is the reality. Trump was elected in order to fight the culture war. That's the truth of it. If you ask his people why they love him, they don't love him because of the policy. I know there are wonks out there, you know, people like me who like a lot of Trump's policy. But the reality is that the reason that Trump has an outsized fan base who are addicted and devoted to him is not because of what he has done on taxes. It is not because of conservative judges. It is because he does fight the culture battles and the culture wars are the place that this country is currently living. It's going to be that way until it's either weapons down on the culture war by the left or until the institutions themselves are either demolished or alternatives built or infiltrated by people who think differently. What we are watching is a battle over the institutions. Trump and the Democrats, all that stuff is at the tip of the iceberg, right? That is just the most possible, that, that is the most obvious manifestation of this giant culture war that has been roiling America for decades on end. It, it really does go back decades, but we have now reached, I think, the culminating point. And frankly, I think it culminated over the last couple of weeks with this, frankly, unbelievable, unbelievable push by the CDC to tranche out vaccines by race. I think that is the culmination. Because if there's one institution that Americans should have really ultimate trust in at this point. It is the institution of science. I don't mean science as an ideology. I mean that science is meant to simply be hypothesis and rebuttal. It is meant to be testing and it's, me- it's meant to be falsifiability. It's meant to just be adding to the body of human knowledge by asking questions and getting objective answers. And yet science has now been hijacked in pursuit of politics. We have seen even that which has risen above disease, made subject to the pursuit of politics in a time. It really is sort of a microcosm of where we are as a country and where we are as a civilization in a time when Americans should have the most trust they've ever had in the scientific establishment, right? We have developed inside of nine months, the people who we hated most, the pharmaceutical companies, inside of nine months, they developed vaccines that are 95% effective in preventing you from getting the disease and apparently have beneficial effects even if you do get the disease in weakening the effects of the disease. That is a triumph of science greater than any triumph of science, certainly since the the landing man on the moon. I mean, it really is that monumental, a triumph of science. We have seen doctors and medical workers. We have seen nurses going into hospitals with without proper protection. We see them in the hospitals right now working extraordinary shifts. We see the hospitals packed to the gills with people who have COVID. And we see our medical workers who are out there fighting for life each and every day. And yet the amount of trust that we have in our public health experts, right, who are the who are the scientific institutions infused with politics is at an all-time low, and it should be at an all-time low. Because as with all other institutions in American life, the scientific establishment has been infused with a certain level of wokeism, right? The people who run our public health establishment, this has been true since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, 
when everything became very political very fast. I, I was saying for months at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I didn't understand why COVID had become so political. We should simply follow the data and then determine what was going to save the most lives and balance that out with what was going to infringe on the fewest possible freedoms and allow us to live our lives as normally as humanly possible while protecting the most lives. And that sh those should be the obvious priorities of concern. Instead, it turned extremely political, extremely fast, and it became overtly political, particularly during the George Floyd protests, when 15 to 26 million Americans went out in the streets in the middle of a pandemic, and public health experts, epidemiologists from places like Harvard, went out there and suggested that it was perfectly okay for you to protest for George Floyd, but it was really bad for you to go to church. You couldn't go to a funeral for grandma outdoors, but you definitely could go out there and shout about racial injustice in the United States. And they said this in the name of science, right? Institutions get perverted. And so, as I say, this, this final sort of, uh, it, it is the biggest story. I mean, there, there are a lot of people today who are going to talk about Trump's pardons. There are a lot of people who are going to talk about the, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But the big story of the last month is not any of the, the stuff that Trump has been doing. Because what will happen with that will happen with that, right? Either bills will get passed or bills won't get passed. Either Trump will leave office or, or something cataclysmic will happen. But one thing has already happened, and it is indicative of a deeper problem. And again, it's why you got Trump, because Trump, as I've said about American politics, basically since 2016, Trump is the coroner. He is not the murderer. Everybody wants to treat it as though American politics is perfectly normal and perfectly okay until Trump arrived on the scene. That is not correct. All of Trump's heresies were, were pre-approved by the left. He just came around and said, okay, now I'm going to do it on behalf of the right. Okay, but in any case, the biggest story of the, honestly, I think it's of the last several years, is the fact that the CDC was going to tranche out life-saving care based on race. And then they wonder, then people wonder, why don't you have trust in the institutions? Why do you just want somebody who's going to come in and break things? Because when you lose institutional trust, everything gets torn down to the ground. So if you want to rebuild institutional trust, what you need to do is stop infusing all of the institutions with your politics. And you're starting to see this. I think the, this is why I'm optimistic. I think some people on the moderate left are coming around to this. I think some moderate liberals are coming around to this. So Yasha Monk, who normally writes for The Atlantic, he writes over at, uh, at persuasion.community why I'm losing trust in the institutions. He says, who should be first in line to get the vaccine against COVID-19? These kinds of decisions are never easy. There are many competing considerations. Highly trained moral philosophers can have deep disagreements about them. Though I myself have studied ethics and political philosophy for much of my academic career, I'm deeply grateful I don't have to make those judgment calls. But for all of those difficulties, there are also some bedrock principles on which virtually all moral philosophers have long agreed. The first is that we should avoid leveling down everyone's quality of life for the purpose of achieving equality. It is unjust when some people have plenty of food while others are starving, but alleviating that inequality by making sure that an even greater number of people starve is clearly wrong. The second is we should not use ascriptive characteristics like race or ethnicity to allocate medical resources. To save one patient rather than another based on the color of their skin rightly strikes most philosophers and most Americans as barbaric. The Centers for Disease Control have just thrown both of those principles overboard in the name of social justice. In one of the most shocking moral misjudgments by a public body I've ever seen, the CDC invoked considerations of social justice to recommend providing vaccinations to essential workers before older Americans, even though this would, according to its own models, lead to a much greater death toll. After a massive public outcry, the agency has adopted revised recommendations. But though these are a clear improvement, they still violate the two bedrock principles of allocative justice and are likely to cause unnecessary suffering on a significant scale. And then he goes into the details as to how all of this happened and how, the, how politics infused the, the entire consideration here. He says, 
the CDC was effectively about to recommend that a greater number of African-Americans die so that the share of African-Americans who receive the vaccine is slightly higher, right? This is what I explained yesterday and the day before on, on the show. And I was pointing out that if you benefit 20-year-old essential workers who are proportionately more black, over, 60, over 85-year-old grandmothers who are proportionally more white, you're still going to end up killing an absolute number of black people more, a higher absolute number of black people, because black people over the age 85 are still in that group of over the age of 85, and they are the most likely to die. If you're a 20-year-old black essential worker, the likelihood of you dying is extraordinarily low. So as Yasha Monk says, in blatant violation of the leveling down objection, prioritizing essential workers in the name of equality would likely kill more people in all relevant demographic groups. As criticism of the recommendations mounted, epidemiologists mostly circled the wagon, but thankfully the pressure was too strong to ignore. At a meeting that had before the mounting controversy been expected to rubber stamp the recommendations that had already been unanimously accepted, the CDC changed course and now suggested a more complicated scheme. Once medical workers had received the vaccine, both Americans over the age of 74 and essential frontline workers would be vaccinated. In the second phase, Americans over the age of 64 and the broader group of all remaining essential workers would get access to the vaccine. But this too is idiotic. The reality is that if you are going to look at the actual proportion of people dying from COVID-19, it makes zero sense to not tranche older people before all of these essential workers. I was looking at these stats yesterday, by the way, this is me, not Yasha Monk. The COVID risk, this is according to the CDC, COVID risk is heavily striated by age. According to the CDC, the death rate, the death rate of COVID for those above the age of 85 is 630 times the death rate for those between the ages of 18 and 49 and uh, 18 and uh, 29. For those between 75 and 84, the death rate is 220 times higher. For those between 65 and 74, the death rate is 90 times higher. So why in the world would you be prioritizing essential frontline workers who are 24 over people who are 67, right? In one group, people are 90 times more likely to die than in the other group. That doesn't make any sense. But again, this is all social justice wokeism created by experts who are now, who are now going to cram down their agenda on you. So here's what Yasha Monk says. He says, by disposition, I trust the functioning of establishment institutions and the decent intentions of my compatriots. In a country with rapidly falling social trust and growing political dysfunction, I try to hold on to my belief that some key organizations are doing their best. Until a few years ago, it was obvious to me I can trust what is written in the newspaper or what I am told by public health authorities. Now, I am losing that trust. I still believe that most people, including the journalists who write for established newspapers and the civil servants who staff federal agencies are the heroes in their own stories. They genuinely mean well. But I no longer trust any institution in American life to such an extent I am willing to rely on its account of the world without looking into important matters on my own. So Yasha Monk is a mainstream liberal, right? This, is, this guy's a Democrat. And he is writing what I think many Americans now believe. It is not Trump who has undermined the institutions. The institutions undermined themselves and then Trump pointed out that they were hollow. That is what has happened over the course of the last four years. As Yasha Monk concludes, the reasons for this mistrust are perfectly encapsulated in the reports the mainstream newspapers published about the CDC's recommendation. The write-up in the New York Times, for example, barely mentions the committee's last-minute change of heart. A faithful reader of the newspaper of record would not even know that an important public body was, until it received massive criticism from the public, about to sacrifice thousands of American lives on the altar of a dangerous and deeply illiberal ideology. And this is right, because the wokeism, the speaking of the vocabulary, the creation of the new ruling class, that exists across institutions. It is not merely relegated to the medical. It is not merely relegated to the CDC. It exists across institutions. It's been perfectly evident to people who have been watching closely for the last several years. It made itself incredibly manifest this year. Whatever questions we had about our institutions, the institutions set themselves on fire over the course of the last year. They set themselves on fire. They doused themselves in gasoline and they lit a match. And going into next year, that's going to leave a choice for Americans. 
Because what the left is going to do is they are now with the with the power of the presidency behind them. When Joe Biden takes office, the Electoral College is voted. When that happens, all of these forces are going to be brought to bear in double the strength they normally would be. The reason that so many on the right were invested in Trump is because they saw Trump, I think in many ways correctly, as the man standing in the breach. They saw Trump as the guy who was taking on these institutions. They saw Trump as the guy who was willing to say the unsayable. Sure, sometimes he said ridiculous things. Sure, sometimes he tweeted dumb stuff. But the reality is he was also saying things that needed to be said in a way that many Republicans were shy. Many Republicans were shy to take on these institutions. Trump was never shy to take on the institutions. And a lot of Republicans said, okay, you know what? That's good. I'm glad that we're doing that. So the question is, if Trump isn't there and Biden is in there and Biden is going to be standing behind the institutional powers that be and ramming them forward, what are you going to do to fight back? What are we going to do to fight back? I want to talk a little bit more about the collapse of our institutional trust and what it means for the coming year, what it meant for the last year in just one second. First, let us talk about your sleep quality. So last night, my baby, she'd been sleeping through the night. She woke up five o'clock this morning and she decided it was time to party. The good news was that between the time I went to bed and the time I woke up, I slept like a baby, which I need, right? The less sleep you get, the, the better quality your sleep has to be. Helix sleep makes the magic happen. So I was at a hotel a couple of nights ago in Nashville, and I will tell you, nice hotel, right? Perfectly good hotel. But the mattress was not my Helix sleep mattress. I did not sleep as well. Helix Sleep, it makes a mattress made just for you. They've got a quiz. It takes just two minutes to complete. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody is unique. Helix knows that. They have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. So, if you are looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't even need to go to a mattress store like ever again. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Ben, take that two-minute sleep quiz. They will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to 200 bucks off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go check them out right now, helixsleep.com slash Ben for that very special deal. Okay, so what is the ideology of the new ruling class? The ideology of the new ruling class is that they are going to achieve ultimate utopia via equality of outcome. The new ideology of the, uh, of the ruling class is wokeism. It's the stuff that's taught at major universities. And so this, this ideological poison seeps into the bloodstream via the universities. The universities have been completely taken over by a radical left contingent that sees human beings in terms of group and seeks social justice, which is to say group justice at the expense of individual justice, that believes that Americans can be categorized by race, by sex, by sexual orientation. And then the coalition of the victimized can launch itself at the, at the broader superstructure of American society. In order to do that, however, you have to renormalize America's institutions. You have to take over institutions that were not designed to cram down this divisive and disgusting ideology. You have to take over those institutions. So how do you do that? What you do is you start off with a small core of people who are extremely angry and extremely loud. That is how you take over institutions. And there's a process that I've talked about on the show before. It's called renormalization. Renormal, and this is the story, again, of the last 20 years, and it has accelerated radically over the course of the last couple of years. Really since 2010, I would say. But certainly in the last couple of years since, since Trump took over. Renormalization of the institutions. When Trump became president, there was an open effort to take over institutions that had not yet been taken over or to radicalize institutions that were already far to the left. All it takes is a, a tipping point, a number of people in order to tip an entire institution. So renormalization theory, 
which is a, is a term that was used by Nisim Nicholas Taleb, the author of, of the book Black Swan. He talks about how you can use a process to basically let a motivated minority cow a larger, largely uninterested majority into going along to get along. So Taleb, in his book, he gives the example of you have a vegetarian daughter in your family, and there are four members of the family. And so the vegetarian daughter can get the entire family to eat vegetarian. All she has to do is say, I'm not going to eat a meal that is not vegetarian. You can eat what you want, but I'm only going to eat vegetarian. Now, mom has a decision to make. Is she going to cook two separate meals, one for everybody else and one for the daughter? Or is she just going to cook one meal and everybody sort of goes along with it? Now the entire family is eating vegetarian because they love the daughter, right? Because she's an intransigent minority, right? Not a racial minority, an ideological minority. Okay, now you can take that family and you put them in a block party with four other families. And that family says, listen, because of our daughter, we all eat vegetarian. You can eat what you want. But the reality is that the, the, we're not going to eat whatever meat dishes you make. Now the person at the head of the block party has to decide, do I order two separate meals? Or is it easier for me just to order one meal and everybody just eats vegetarian? So now, based on one person, you have basically 20 people who are eating vegetarian. You can keep renormalizing up this way. Right? That's what you can do. And this applies in politics as in life. So Taleb writes in his, in his book, he says, you think that because some extreme right or left-wing party has, say, the support of 10% of the population, their candidate will get 10% of the votes. No, these baseline voters should be classified as inflexible and will always vote for their faction. Some of the flexible voters can also vote for that extreme faction. These people are the ones to watch out for as they may swell the number of votes for the extreme party. But it's not enough to have one stubborn person. You have to have a tipping point. Right? You need to actually have a certain number of people who are going to go along in order to get along. And you have to have a certain number of people who are part of this hardcore coalition. So what the left has done is they've created a coalition. They understand that in a, in a company of a thousand people, there may only one, be one transgender person. And if that transgender person says, I demand that every single person in the company start using preferred pronouns and that we declassify all the bathrooms, the other 999 people may say, no, nah, we're not going to do that. But if the transgender person can get together with people who are in favor of other minority rights at the, at the corporate level, and then they can form up, and now you got 20% of the population all stumping for each other's causes, right? This sort of Saul Alinsky coalitional politics. You can take over an entire institution. There's a physicist named Serge Galam. He has posited that in some cases, only about 20% of a population is needed to support an extreme view in order to cause radical renormalization. One way of creating an intransigent minority coalition would be the activation of what he calls frozen prejudices at the risk of appearing intolerant or immoderate to a broad majority while maintaining a solid core base. In other words, you start with a more motivated core group. You don't worry about who you alienate. You appeal to the prejudices of other vulnerable groups, and then they're forced to choose between joining with you and their most ardent enemies, people they actually don't like. Okay, so this is what has happened inside corporations. It has happened inside Hollywood. It's how Hollywood somehow got more left. And over the course of the last few years, you now have the Academy Awards declaring, for example, that they are only going to give awards based on whether the storyline features protagonists who are of particular race or particular sex or particular sexual orientation, or whether a certain number of supporting players are, are of these particular group dynamics. You see corporations mirroring all this sort of stuff. And you see the media, which has been completely overtaken by, by wokeism, pushing this agenda extraordinarily hard. Okay, so here's an example. So the, the Google is one of the biggest companies on the planet. Google has gone nearly completely woke, right? Several years ago, there's this whole controversy because James Damore, who was working for Google at the time, he put out a memo about diversity inside the halls of Google in which he suggested that maybe the reason why he didn't have as many female engineers is because women didn't tend to go into engineering as much or because if you look 
at test scores on engineering, women tend to occupy the middle of the bell curve while men tend to occupy the tail ends of the bell curve. Right? And he was thrown out of Google for this. Well, Google has become completely woke because they are so afraid of their own employees. They're afraid of being perceived by the larger group of, of Americans as intolerant and bigoted. But more importantly, they're afraid of their own employees. They're afraid of their own staff. And you don't have to show evidence. See, all you have to do is be intransigent. You don't have to show evidence that wokeism is true. All you have to do is insist that people cater to you and people will begin catering to you. Right? This is what happens across the political spectrum. And it certainly is happening on the left and it's happening with regard to our institutions. So there's a, a, a story from Hot Air today talking uh, about a former Google diversity recruiter who quit and talked about how terrible Google is to black people. Now, that, that is not true, okay? Like the idea that Google is radically bad to black people, the evidence on that is extraordinarily scanty. It didn't matter. This woman, whose name is April Christina Curley, she announced on Twitter this week she'd been fired in September after six years with Google. She worked as a diversity recruiter. Her particular project was to help Google hire students straight out of historically black universities and colleges. Okay, now, immediately you would say, well, that doesn't sound like Google is trying to racially discriminate. It sounds like, I mean, at least not against black people. It sounds as though they're trying to racially discriminate in favor of black people by specifically recruiting at historically black colleges and universities. But this person writes, the reason Google never hired an HBCU student straight out of undergrad into one of their key engineering rules is because they didn't believe talent existed at these institutions until I showed up. When I started at Google, I quickly became aware of all the racist bleep put in place to keep black and brown students out of their pipeline. I routinely called out shady recruitment practices, such as screening out resumes of students with unfamiliar schools or university names. Okay, first of all, that, that is not a shady recruitment practice. If I don't recognize the name of a school, and then I do recognize the brand name of Harvard, there's a certain level of sorting that goes on when it comes to engineering jobs where people immediately assume that if you went to Harvard, and I think rightly so, that you are probably of higher IQ than a person who went to the local junior college that you've never heard of. Right? College is a sorting mechanism. That's basically all that it is at this point. But this person is too busy accusing Google of, of racism and cruelty. So she says, every single day for six years, I fought tirelessly to provide black and brown students the opportunity to launch a career in tech. Often I found myself arguing and pleading with white women who lead recruitment teams for internships and full-time roles, begging for students who are more than qualified to be considered for offers. And then she says, because of my adv adamant advocacy of black and brown students to be fairly and justly considered for roles at Google, I experienced active abuse and retaliation from several managers who harassed me and many other black women. Despite stellar performance metrics, which can, which can be supported by multiple data points, I was repeatedly denied promotions, had my compensation cut, placed on performance improvement plans, denied leadership opportunities, yelled at, intentionally excluded from meetings, etc. The final finale, she says, F Google, F the way Google treats black women and black people they do not want, black talent, take it from me, the most successful black queer woman recruiter who they fired in the middle of an MF pandemic because they were tired of hearing me call them out on their racist BS. This is the second high-profile black employee to announce leaving Google this month. Okay, the backlash within the company led to a group called the Black Googler Network meeting with Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai with a list of demands regarding all sorts of things. You can watch the renormalization of Google in process. Okay, now, now they've already renormalized. Google is already a far-left network, right? If you, if you Google certain terms on Google, they've already jogged their, their search results to come up with certain left-wing ideas. Okay, but putting that aside... This is the way that institutions get captured, particularly corporations. So corporations are so deeply afraid on every level of being sued. They're afraid of bad publicity. And because they seek a, a uniform corporate culture, it is easier to make everybody uniform by adopting wokeism than it is to make everybody uniform by rejecting wokeism. And so you've seen the corporations taken over every single day. 
Every single day this year, I've been receiving notes from people who have interviews at top 50 corporations saying that they're being asked questions like, what have you done to fight American systemic racism? I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with being an engineer at Google. Nothing. Also, it makes assumptions about the world that simply aren't true. But better to mirror the crowd than to actually stand up to the lie. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, you may have noticed we're experiencing a ton of global instability as primary season continues. How are you protecting your family in the midst of all of this chaos and nonsense? The fact is there is one asset that has withstood famine, war, political, and economic upheaval dating all the way back to biblical times. That, of course, would be gold. It's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold can help you create a well-thought-out, balanced investment strategy. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold without paying a penny out of pocket. Diversify into gold today. Just text Ben to 989898 for a free info kit. With an A-plus rating, with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to check out Birch Gold today. Text Ben to 989898. Claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Smart investors diversify. And when you look at the pace of inflation over the past several years, you can see financial instability is the new way of the world. Text Ben to 989898 to get started with Birch Gold today. Text Ben to 989898 and talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. Right. This is why Americans don't trust corporate institutions, because they see they, they see Apple saying that it stands up for wokeism, simultaneously saying that it wants to stand in favor of slave labor in China. They see LeBron James suggesting that America is systemically racist at the same time that he is yelling at Daryl Morey from the from the Houston Rockets for standing up for freedom in Hong Kong. We all under, understand the game here. We all understand that our institutions have been perverted to push certain political ends. Trump was one middle finger thrown up at that, but I think more middle fingers are to come because there is one big lie that is told. This is, this is what unifies the woke ideology. The one big lie is that America and the West are terrible, awful, no good, very bad places and that all of this has to be torn down to the studs. And in order to do that, because that is an unpopular viewpoint in America, what you have to do is you have to silence everybody. There's a silent majority in this country. They are being actively silenced. Okay, I can't tell you that, honestly, the number of calls and emails that I receive over the course of a given week from people who say, I'm afraid of speaking up. I'm afraid of saying what I think is true. I'm afraid of saying it in a college classroom. I can't say it to my high school friends. I can't put it up on social media. And we're not talking about saying awful, terrible things. We're talking about putting up pictures of yourself at a 4th of July parade. We're talking about saying that America is not systemically racist. It's stuff that most Americans tend to believe. If you say that you think it's bad to kneel for the flag, this is now considered a, a breach of protocol. The only way you can get away with this is by silencing. And the way that you get away with this by silencing is by leveraging the institutions of power on your behalf. The right is not incorrect to feel that it is under assault from every major institution of our society because it basically is. Traditional, and when I say the right, I don't mean small government libertarianism. I mean social values. I mean a certain level of, of respect for American history and a belief in deeply American principles like individual rights like constitutional rights, like the Declaration of Independence. These things are deeply controversial in today's world. And if you signify your support for them and your opposition to people who try to tear them down, this puts you not only on the chopping block, it puts you at the risk of being excised from polite society. That is what everybody has been feeling over the course of this year. The, the pandemic only exacerbated this, particularly in the wake of the, the racial protests that we saw. But what we are living through is a, is a renormalization of all of American society via the institutions. This has always been a dangerous aspect of American life, right? Social, uh, America relies a lot on social pressure, not just governmental pressure. And now we're getting it from both ends, right? We're going to get a government that is going to be fostering this sort of institutional discrimination against conservatism or against traditional social values or against even basic 
positive views of Americanism. We're going to see that from, from the government. But social life matters a lot more than that. America, because the government was small historically, always relied a lot on social, on social pressure in order, to, in order to force compliance with sort of social norms. That could be good, depending on what social norms are being enforced. The problem is the social norms right now are really, really bad, the ones that are being enforced. Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out the dangers of this going all the way back to 1831. Here's what de Tocqueville writes. He says, under the absolute government of one alone, despotism struck the body crudely so as to reach the soul. And the soul, escaping from those blows, rose gloriously above it. But in democratic republics, tyranny does not proceed in this way. So he's saying that if you look to the tyrannies of Europe, then what you see is an absolute despotic government cramming down its viewpoint on everybody else. But people tend to rebel against that. He says in democratic republics, that's, that's not what happens. He says, it leaves the, in democratic republics, tyranny does not proceed in this way. It leaves the body and goes straight for the soul. The master no longer says to it, you shall think as I do or you shall die. He says, you're free not to think as I do. Your life, your goods, everything remains to you. But from this day on, you are a stranger among us. You shall keep your privileges in the city, but they will become useless to you. For if you crave the vote of your fellow citizens, they will not grant it to you. And if you demand only their esteem, they will still pretend to refuse it to you. You shall remain among men, but you shall lose your rights of humanity. When you approach those like you, they shall flee you as being impure. And those who believe in your innocence, even they shall abandon you. For one would flee them in their turn. Go in peace. I leave you your life, but I leave it to you worse than death. Right? That, it, what the Tocqueville says there, that is what we are undergoing right now. We are undergoing the, the use of social pressure in order to completely destroy not only all social comedy, but any ability to dissent. We have now reached the point where, by the way, this week, the former head of the ACLU had an amazing quote. So the former head of the ACLU the other day, he, he put out a, a statement in which he talked with Reason Magazine. And here is what he says. He says that, remember, the ACLU, these are the people who used to defend free speech. These are the people who used to believe that even Nazis should be able to march through Skokie, right? A heavily Jewish area in Chicago. Right. Ira Glasser, who is the former head of the ACLU, here is what he said. This is, this is the new America in which we live. He said he was visiting one of America's top law schools, quote, the audience was a rainbow. There were as many women as men. There were people of every skin color and every ethnicity. It was the kind of thing we dreamed about. It was, uh, so I'm looking at this audience and feeling very wonderful about it. And then after the panel discussion, person after person got up, including some of the younger professors, to assert that their goals of social justice for blacks, for women, for minorities of all kinds were incompatible with free speech and that free speech was an antagonist. For people who today claim to be passionate about social justice to establish free speech as an enemy is suicidal. But here's the thing, it's not suicidal because social justice is not actually in favor of free speech. It is not in favor of individual rights. It is in favor of you shutting the F up, right? That is what the institutions have been militized, militarized on behalf of. This is why you are not allowed to talk about the fact that America is not systemically racist in public places, right? I'm lucky. I get to do it for a living. But if you say that in a corporate boardroom, you'll get fired. If you say that at university, you'll get graded down and ostracized by your classmates. If you say that, even in the halls of science, you will be shouted down. For God's sake, the Center for Disease Control is about to tranche out vaccines based on race. In a free country, we're supposed to be treated as individuals. So you're not wrong to feel like you're under assault. You were never wrong to feel like you were under assault. You are under assault. You're under assault from Hollywood. You're under assault from the scientific community now. You're under assault from social media, you're, which, which will shut down your ability to even talk. Right, get ready for that. That's, that's going to be the big one next year. You're going to see a, a spate of big name bannings. This is something my friend Dave Rubin has been pointing out. Twitter is already talking about banning Trump the minute he's not president. You're seeing it from corporations, which is the most dangerous of all. 
But the, the most pervasive way you see this is from the media. The media have been institutionally captured and they pervert every one of these other instances, right? So the media have basically become an activist group. They're in the business of promoting wokeism in science. They're in the business of promoting wokeism in social media and cracking down on social media and trying to prevent social media from being able to disseminate ideas that you like, but that they don't, right? This is why media has basically devoted itself to trying to pressure places like Facebook and Twitter into canceling people they don't like, right? It is the media who are driving all of these narratives about why it's good to protest in favor of, of defunding the police, but it's very bad to protest in favor of being able to open your business. It is the media who have been pushing Hollywood, even Hollywood, to the left. It is the media who have been treating corporations as evil and wrongheaded if they dare to stand up for their own ability to make money. Right? So the first, so how are we going to fight back? That I'm going to get to that in just one second, how we fight back here, because that really is the big question. We'll get to that in just one moment. First, let's talk about an amazing gift you can get somebody this holiday season. I'm talking about Legacy Box. Legacy Box is an effortless way to have your aging tapes, films, and photos digitally preserved on a modern format so they are safe for generations. Many of us have irreplaceable moments on tapes, on film reels that we can no longer watch. Your home movies, they're like a time capsule. Legacy Box can help you open it. All that stuff's out in your garage right now. It's moldering. It's falling apart. Get it preserved right now. I just did this for my parents. They really appreciated it. We went out to their garage. We got all their old film reels now. They have tape of us when we were kids from you know VHS camcorders. And they have, ta- they have film reels that have been transferred over to digital of their own parents and their grandparents. It really is amazing stuff. Go check out Legacy Box right now. The service could not be simpler. Use their kit to safely send the moments you want preserved. Their team will create a digital archive by hand. Then you receive your new copies stored on the cloud, a thumb drive or DVD, along with all the original media you sent them. With their tracking system, you can monitor every step of the process so you always know your originals are being taken care of. Over the past 10 years, Legacy Box has helped close to 1 million families restore and protect their most cherished memories. Right now, they're offering 50% off so you can have everything preserved at once for a fraction of the regular price. Once you have these digital versions, you can relax knowing they will be secure for generations. So even though it's last minute, you can still get the most meaningful gift of the holidays right now by going to LegacyBox.com slash Shapiro. Take advantage of this limited time offer. Get 50% off. Take advantage of that exclusive offer today. Use their kit now. Send it in whenever you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com slash Shapiro. Save 50% while supplies last. In a moment, we'll get to what we can do in the next year because you know we're getting to the end of the year. What can we do next year to fight back against this? Because it feels like all the guns are pointed in against the views that are traditionally American. We're going to talk about what we can do to fight back. First, Daily Wire is excited to announce that the historical docuseries Apollo 11, What We Saw, is now available exclusively for Daily Wire members. Originally released as an audio podcast for Apple and Spotify, What We Saw takes a detailed look at the Apollo 11 mission to land a man on the moon. It was the culmination of a heated, decades-long space race between Cold War rivals, the United States and the Soviet Union. The podcast explores one of America's greatest accomplishments through the eyes of the millions of Americans who lived through it. Now, Apollo 11, what we saw, is available to watch as well as listen to over at thedailywire.com or on our Apple TV or Roku app. The series is just one piece of all the new content we have coming down the pipeline. I'm talking about like a bevy of new content. We're talking about a new show with Candace Owens that's coming probably March. The entire PragerU library is now available behind our paywall. We have a brand new entertainment channel with mainstream film, mainstream TV. Now, let me just tell you, we have a new investigative team. Now, let me just tell you, I'm gonna make a, a real pitch here, okay? All this stuff is expensive. It's expensive to produce and to compete with the, with the establishment media that seeks to destroy all the things you believe in, right? Investigative journalism is not cheap. Entertainment is super not cheap. That means that we need your help. If you want to see somebody compete, if you want to see an alternative to what you are seeing out there and you don't like, if you want to turn back the tide, 
you should join the fight. I mean, you get all this good content, you get to enjoy it, but you're also helping out. Become a Daily Wire Insider or Above member for 20% off with code WATCH over at dailywire.com slash subscribe. Make sure to download our Apple TV or Roku app to get all of our content on your big screen, including our podcasts and special live streams. That is dailywire.com slash subscribe to get 20% off your membership with code WATCH and access to all of our new and existing content. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So how do we fight back against this is really the question, because as I say, I think everybody feels it. By the way, I think the people who are who are even kind of mainstream liberals feel this. The reason that I know this is that there are polls talking about how many people are afraid to speak up how many people feel the pressure not to say what they think. And the answer is an awful lot of them. In fact, the only subgroup of Americans who believe that they get to say what they believe on a regular basis are people who consider themselves progressive. That is that is the only group of people in America by polling who feel that they get to say what they believe. So how do we fight back against this? Well, first of all, we're going to have to rely on people, believe it or not, who are moderate liberals who are sick of watching the Overton window shut. Now, at the beginning, it's going to be self-preservation. It's going to be like that Harper's Weekly letter that you saw earlier this year where a bunch of anti-Trump liberals signed a letter saying, we don't like cancel culture. I was like, you know what would have been nice is if you had actually defended people who you disagree with, not just you agreeing with yourself and saying that you wish that you hadn't been canceled. It'd be really nice if you opened up the Overton window a little bit wider. You're going to have to rely on moderate liberals. But I think that coalition is building. I think the backlash is building. I think that there is, a, there, is, there is now cultural energy behind the idea that there has to be some sort of alternative here. And so there, there are a few things that we can do. Right? There, there are a few things that I think are actually pretty necessary here to fight back. And I think that this is going to be the battle for the next year. As people get thrown off of social media, as, the, as social media gets hijacked by a Biden administration, as Biden attempts to use the power of government to cram down his own particular woke viewpoint, and I know that he isn't by nature woke, but he has adopted wokeism as his own. Okay, I, as this happens, there are going to be a few things that have to happen. One, conservatives are going to have to take a page from Trump, not in terms of tweeting whatever Trump tweets, but you have to embrace truth and not niceness. I know there are a lot of conservatives out there who are worried that if you speak truth, it is not nice. It's one of the reasons why my slogan has been for years now, facts don't care about your feelings. That actually was something that came up in the midst of a discussion about what sort of pronouns to use with people. And I was pointing out that biological males are biologically male. And somebody said, well, you have to respect the pronouns. And I said, well, facts don't care about your feelings. Okay, well, facts do not care about your feelings. And we're going to all have to push forward with that attitude because it is niceness that has been the chief weapon used against the right. I think the right knows this, by the way. It's why the right is never going to nominate John McCain or Mitt Romney again. Those days are over. There's going to be no more of this civil, this sort of civil concession to the language of the left. There's not going to be any more premise accepting from the right. I think that is one of the legacies that Trump has had. But I think that that was going to happen almost regardless. It's why Ted Cruz came in second, right? So the the fact is that niceness is going to be rejected in favor of standing up in favor of virtue. And here's the thing. Standing up in favor of virtue is not mean. It is just truth. Standing up in favor of virtue does not mean that you are a jerk. It means that you are saying things that are true and necessary. Also, you're going to have to engage and convince, right? This is something that we have not yet done. This means we do have to reach out to people who are in the middle. We do have to reach out to suburban women who turned away from Trump in this last election cycle. We are going to have to reach out, not just to to people who already agree with us, but increasingly, we're going to have to reach out with a conservative message that speaks truth boldly and and draws in stark colors to, to people who have not historically voted Republican. By the way, that has effect, right? Trump won an outsized number of Hispanics in the last election cycle, contrary to all previous opinion. He did really well in Texas with Hispanics. He did really well in Florida with Hispanics. He won an outsized share of the black vote, right? As alienating as Trump can be, 
speaking truth bluntly sometimes has an effect. And even if you say, well, yeah, Trump didn't always speak truth, right? Trump said things that are false. I agree with you. He said a lot of things that are false. But the underlying message, which is that the institutions suck and are attempting to drag you into their own ideology, he was not wrong about that. And I think everybody sort of got that, right? Selena Zito had this formulation early on in Trump's in campaign where they said people take Trump seriously, but not literally. And I think that that has always been true. I think it will remain true because the serious message underneath all of this is that this stuff has to stop, that the assault has to stop. Okay, there's another tactic that the right is going to have to take. And this is a tactic I don't particularly like, but I think that we are reaching that point. Okay, it's something that, that I myself pushed when I was the head of an organization called Truth Revolt. My, my business partner, Jeremy Boring, and I, before we ever launched Daily Wire, uh, we, we, were, we launched a mission that was sort of reverse media matters. The idea, and we said it clearly, was mutually assured destruction. Because here's the thing. If you can renormalize an organization as large as Google, simply by cobbling together a coalition of the supposedly dispossessed in order to renormalize from the inside, and you can exercise pressure from the institutions like the media from the outside in order to move institutions, if you can threaten boycotts, if you can threaten bad publicity from one side and move the institution, the right has a choice. We can either set it out and we can, and we can let the left do that, or we can fight back on the left's terms. And that means that if we see a company that is now pushing leftism, we're going to have to use the same means as the left. Not because we like those means. I don't like those means. I wish we didn't have to do that. But just like with mutually assured destruction, where everybody wishes nuclear weapons didn't exist, the only thing worse then you're, uh, the only thing worse than you having nuclear weapons and your opponents having nuclear weapons is your opponents having nuclear weapons and you not having nuclear weapons, right? Mutually assured destruction kept the peace. The reason it kept the peace is because everybody knew it had to be weapons down. Otherwise, everything would go up in flames. The right is going to, in some ways, have to become more militant, not less militant. Militant on behalf of principle, okay? Not on behalf of personality, not on behalf of just yelling at people, but on behalf of principle. When corporations start cramming down Robin D'Angelo diversity classes, People inside the organization are going to have to say no, and they're going to have to unify to say no. And this is really the key point beyond everything else. Okay, beyond everything else, there's going to have to be some level of solidarity that is built up. It is not fair to ask individuals who are inside institutions to stand up. As I said before, if the ratio is a thousand to one against you, you standing up just gets you fired. We're going to need to start coalition building. We're going to need to start building communities of people who are willing to come out together and say, no, we are not going along with this. No, we are simply not going to do this. And we need to provide safe haven for people who do get fired from these sorts of positions. We need to provide defense mechanisms for people who stand up and get clubbed on the head. And that means the building of alternative institutions. That means we need an alternative media for people who are ousted from traditional media for speaking the truth. It means that we need an alternative Hollywood structure where people in Hollywood who disagree with the prevailing wokeism of Hollywood have a place to go and get their movies funded. And we need to patronize those movies. We need to make sure that people actually watch that stuff we need to make sure that if you are in the scientific establishment and you are out and, and you are ousted for the grave sin of saying something biologically true, that we provide a, a soft landing for you, that we provide a landing spot for you. And one, one of the great mistakes that the right made is that they always assumed that institutions beyond college would shape the people coming out of college. Right? College, we, we understood that colleges shape the students and they shape them toward woke philosophy. But we also assumed that they would get out in the real world, they'd go work in corporate land, they would, they would get a job, they'd pay taxes, and eventually they'd get more conservative. And there was some truth to that. But statistically speaking, what has now happened here is that people exited college and instead of the institutions shaping them, they shaped the institutions. And then by grabbing power at the institutions, they used the institutions to create widgets of themselves, to silence everybody. There is a majority in this country that still believes that America is the greatest country ever conceived. There's still a majority in this country that believes 
that America is not systemically racist and is filled with good people who want to treat each other decently, that still believe in human virtue and believe in individual rights, there's still a majority in this country who's willing to go out and work hard every day and believes that, that work is good for the soul in many cases and that we shouldn't be incentivizing people to stay home. There's still a majority of people in this country who basically want to be left alone. And most of all, there's a majority in this country that still wants to stick together. But in order for us to stick together, we're actually going to have to now create structures for us to stick together. Because as Benjamin Franklin said at the, at the, at the outset of this entire project, either uh, we uh, hang together or we hang separately. That is where things currently stand. So we got to make the choice ourselves right now. This next year is going to be the test. Are we going to hang together or are we going to hang separately? It's easy to splinter in the face of overwhelming pressure. When things look bad, when the White House moves to the Democratic Party, it's easy to get discouraged. Don't get discouraged. Get to fighting because next year is going to be the fight. The fight didn't start with Trump. It didn't end with Trump. It's going to continue now. And as the left pushes harder and harder, that just means the right is going to have to come up with better strategies and push back harder in every arena, not just with regard to voting, but with regard to every cultural institution there is. We're going to have to push back. We're going to have to push back hard. And if we do, I think that we're still the majority and I think that we'll win. Okay, so before we break, I just wanted to um, bring you a couple of minutes of something inspiring. So one of the things that we have done here at Daily Wire is we put together a fantastic series called Apollo 11, What We Saw. It is a, it is a review of the the greatest achievement in human history, perhaps, putting a man on the moon in terms of technological expertise. It is, it is unparalleled in the annals of history, obviously. And uh, Bill Whittle was the host of that particular program for us. It is now available if you subscribe over at Daily Wire. You can get it on Roku and Apple TV. It's a beautiful program to watch. We did these beautiful visuals that go with it, including all of the old footage. It's great to watch with the family. It's an inspiring thing to watch going into the new year. So go over to dailywire.com slash subscribe. I talked to Bill a little bit about it. Here's what that sounded like. Alrighty, well, I thought that now was a great opportunity right before Christmas. It's a great time for you to go to subscribe over at dailywire.com slash subscribe. One of the reasons that you should do so is because we have a series. It's called Apollo 11. What we saw, the host is Bill Whittle. We brought it out on audio a while back, but it's a beautiful video series. And now it is available on Apple TV or Roku for our subscribers. It's amazing to watch. Bill, thanks for joining the show. Great to talk to you. Great to be here, Ben. And as somebody who's still in California, I just want to let you know there's less and less to miss every single day. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I think that after having done the Apollo 11 series, actually, the moon might be a better place for you than California in the very, very near future. So let's talk about the Apollo 11 series that you did. Why do you think that that story is still important for today? Well, especially given the trends of the last uh, six, seven weeks or so, you could make a pretty compelling argument that uh, J July 20th, 1969 was the pinnacle of human history. Uh, it, it may end up being that way. That may have been as far as we've gone. It may have been the boldest thing that we did, the most ambitious thing that we did. I like to think it's not, but certainly as far as history to this point goes, it's the most remarkable achievement in the history of the human species. And uh, one of the things that you do in your Apollo 11 series is you put it into the historical context. It wasn't just a scientific achievement. It was also a political achievement, considering that it really was part and parcel of this massive Cold War that we were having with the Soviet Union at the time. It's exactly right. And um, it, it, it was a subset of the Cold War when you had a 42-year conflict where, you know, the nuclear weapons tend to deter people just running off the handle a little bit. It gave both sides an opportunity to compete for world opinion, and it gave them an opportunity to, to compete with pretty much with the hardware that the, that the militaries of both countries had, had put together. Certainly in the early stages, the, the boosters on both sides were 
intercontinental ballistic missile boosters. And the whole thing was about technology. And as we talk about in, in the first episode, just the, the raw shock of Sputnik, of, of having a, a Russian satellite over it head. And then uh, just a few months later, they put up Sputnik 2 with a dog. A dog died a few hours into flight. So you got to think, here I am an American and in 1957, 58, and there's a dead communist dog flying over my house four or five times a, a day that that tends to focus your mind in an age of, of thermonuclear warheads so bill Whittle, one of the things that that i think is is fascinating about where we are sort of in modern life is there is this feeling that we may be embarking on a second space age this time led by some folks in the private sector like elon musk uh, and and spacex what what is the continuum in terms of you know america's focus on the stars here uh well, the uh, work that the private um, space companies are doing is remarkable, and this is the space age that America really should have. It's a it's a free market space age. It's uh, I hate to use this word sustainable, but it's it's economically sustain sustainable. They're doing it for a profit, which means that they don't get to pull the the rug out from under our feet. There was an Apollo 18, 19, and 20 that were built, stacked, ready to go, and they were simply cut by Congress. So we don't have to worry about those kind of things with, with a private company. All of the great um, aviation companies like Lockheed, Boeing, uh, Hughes, Northrop, were all based on, on individual companies run by individual men who decided this is what I wanna do, and Elon Musk is doing that. My only concern right now, Ben, is that Donald Trump had put together an entirely new-looking NASA. And that NASA was a hands-off NASA that was um, predicated on allowing the private sector to get into space and do the work they've always wanted to. Now we're hearing talk about cooperation with China, and we're hearing talk about um, you know all sorts of uh, making everything an economic and racial issue. And, and that is the only thing that worries me about the space uh, program as it exists today. Musk is amazing because he understands that in this in this era, since we don't have the the Russian threat over our head, he he understands how important it is to make things just plain fun. I mean, the launch of of Starman and a, and a red Tesla Sportster and David Bowie and Don't Panic from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then those twin boosters uh, landing together. Uh, as I say in in the series, I saw the moon landing when I was ten from the. Uh, Plaza Hotel in New York. And when Neil Armstrong said that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, there was a roar, just this roar came up from Central Park. And I haven't heard the like of that since until I heard the reaction to those crowds when those two boosters on SpaceX Falcon Heavy came back down. It was that same sound. So that gave me a lot of hope. Well, folks, you should definitely check out Apollo 11, what we saw. You should check it out visually because while it is a great audio podcast, it is much better visually. You can actually see all of the images uh, you can you can see how beautiful the production values are. Go subscribe over at dailywire.com slash subscribe and go check that out. It makes a great Christmas gift for someone. Bill, great to talk to you. Great to see you, Ben. You're doing great work out there. We'll talk to you soon. Alrighty, folks. So we have reached the end of the year, but don't be discouraged. The fight is only beginning. We'll be here with you next year. Hang in there. Have a good holiday. Stay safe out there. I think the next year is going to be a great year. I don't think it's going to be a good year. I think it's going to be a great year. I think that COVID is going to come to an end. I think that we're going to fight back. I think that we are going to create alternative institutions. I think we're going to fight back against the institutional power leveraged by the left. I think this is the beginning of the resurgence. I don't think this is the, the beginning of the end. I think this is the end of the beginning. And now we get into the real battle. All righty, later today, Michael Moles, host of the Michael Moles Show, will be guest hosting two additional hours of content. Make sure to tune in for that. Have a wonderful Christmas. Have a great new year. We will be back on air January 4th. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Production manager, Pavel Wydowski. Our associate producers are Rebecca Doyle and Savannah Dominguez. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright 2020. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let PureTalk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.